Bible reading is from Acts chapter 9, and it starts with meanwhile. And whenever I read meanwhile, I think, well, hang on, what was happening? Um, what's happening here? And we've just come through Easter where we've had a group of people frightened and hiding in a room to the book of Acts, which is just a mighty exciting time of the church growing. We have the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit is sent onto all believers and thousands of people are saved. And what that does to the Jewish rulers is start up a huge campaign of persecution. They want to stamp this out. They couldn't do it with Jesus. And now there are thousands of people more who are out there sharing their faith in Jesus. And persecution steps up, they try and stamp it out. Then we have the stoning of Stephen, our first martyr, and we meet the person we're going to read about there. Meanwhile, as people are dispersed, Philip goes to Samaria. We read about that last week. Um, and so many people become followers of Jesus that the church in Jerusalem sends Peter and John down to teach them and um, be with them. And then Philip goes to, he's told to go to the Gaza Road, where you know the story of where he meets the Ethiopian and um, leads him to Christ and baptizes him there. So all of this is happening, and we get to chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He hated them. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the followers of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. 
But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised. And after taking some food, he regained his strength and he spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Marion, for that. Um, beautiful reading and great um, little preamble at the start to help us understand what's going on. We have been uh, in this series on encounters, getting some of the stories of you guys, our people. Um, and we've got another one today. Uh, I won't give it too much introduction, but um, Joan, we're going to hear um, some of Joan's story and her experience. Thank you, Barb. We've been talking about encounters with Jesus, and I'd like to share a couple of my encounters with the Holy Spirit. It was 1970, I think. I was a Sunday school teacher, and uh, a colleague of mine came to talk to me. I was really excited about a meeting she'd been to where the baptism of the Holy Spirit had been discussed. She gave me a book because I really didn't know what this was all about. The book was by Dennis uh, Bennett um, called The Holy Spirit and You. He also wrote the book Nine O'Clock in the Morning, which some of you might have read or heard about. On the following Monday, that was my day for cleaning the house. I got out the vacuum cleaner and started on my chores. Eventually arrived at the bedroom and the book was on the bedside table. I picked it up and read a couple of chapters. Then I felt rather guilty because I wasn't doing my vacuuming that I should have been. So I did a bit of vacuuming was called back to the book, a bit more vacuuming, back to the book. Eventually the book won and I just sat on the edge of my bed and read this book. And I came to the part where it said, you can receive the Holy Spirit into your life. You only have to ask, but ask with certainty and an open heart. So I lay back on my bed and I asked with an open heart and waited. Now when you normally get baptized it happens on your head. The anointing is on your head. I got anointed on my feet. My feet became warm and the heat traveled up my body and when it got to my head I just burst out with joy, really joyful. I think I probably laughed out loud too. It was just 
an amazing experience. Now, when you have an experience like this, you're supposed to tell someone. My husband never came home in the daytime. He was either traveling overseas or at the office nine till five. That day, he came home right after my experience so that I could share with him what had happened. Not sure that he completely understood because he had a wife standing there with a vacuum cleaner in one hand and a big grin on her face. In the following days, as I went around the village, everyone seemed beautiful to me. Their faces just seemed to shine, whether it was the the dustman, the postman, the tramp, they all look beautiful and I think that was because I recognized them as children of God. There was another occasion about nine years later, I think it was, Alan and I went on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. We were fortunate to be led by a wonderful man, Selwyn Hughes, some of you may have heard of him, he used to write every day with Jesus Bible um, studies. We would go from place to place in the Holy Land and read the scriptures that related to the place where we were. One day we went to the pool of Bethesda where the Bible states people would go to be healed. And Selwyn said, He'd never been to that place without somebody in the crowd that we were being healed of something or other. And so it was later in the day a lady testified that she had been healed of an eye problem. Great. We moved on and um, went to the site of um, King David's tomb. Now above that is a building with an upper room. Um, we all trooped in, there was a big crowd of us. In that room already was a crew of cameramen. They'd obviously been making a film of some kind, a documentary probably about the upper room. And we started to pray. I'll just read a scripture about that place. It's Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. This happened to us. As we were praying, the Spirit fell in that room and we all began to pray out loud in tongues and some were singing in the Spirit. That noise filled the room there was such a glory in that place. And the cameramen who'd been putting their, their stuff away got out their cameras again and started filming us. 
they came over and said, what's happening? Who are you? And Selwyn Hughes said it was the best meeting he'd ever been at. It was a glorious a glorious I feel emotional just talking about it but certainly the spirit was present with us in that place I'd like to testify that the Holy Spirit is alive and working in the world today praise be to God Thank you, Joan. It's such a blessing to share in the stories of each other, isn't it? I don't know about you, but um, I heard Joan talk about that experience ages ago. And I was like, oh, I know, I know who we need to ask. <laughs> um, because I was really blessed by hearing that, Joan. Thank you again for sharing for everyone here. Let me pray, and then we'll jump into uh, the passage a little bit more. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it opens our hearts and our minds to the truth that we find to be real in you. Lord, um, if we have our eyes open, we see you all around us. If our ears are listening, if our, if our heart is attentive, we recognise that you are moving in this world. You're moving in the lives of your people. You're moving uh, amongst people for whom don't know you yet. And Lord, we just thank you for that. And we thank you for this opportunity for us to delve into that a bit more. And we want to think about this particular story of Saul as he comes to know you for the first time, truly. Lord, we just pray that you'll bless us as we dive into it a bit more, that you'll speak through me and what we might hear is your words as we gather together. Lord, we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some did I hit record? I did. Okay, that's lovely. Um, has anyone here ever had a bad day? No one? Oh, a couple. Okay. Oh, that's good. You know those days where just like nothing seems to want to work? You know, it just it doesn't matter what you'd planned, what you'd prepared. The day has a life of its own and it's going to just do whatever it's going to do. You know, if, if I'm being honest, I kind of love watching the videos of people's bad days. You know, the video of the guy who's like moving the, uh, with, the, with the, the forklift, you know, 50,000 eggs, they all, you know, they all fall over. Or, or um, you know, the guy who's done all this work trying to cut this tree down next to his house and, he's, and it just falls the complete opposite direction of what he's playing and squishes the, squishes the patio or whatever it is. Um, I saw one the other day and it was uh, a lady on a boat ramp and I just love ladies on boat ramps or people in general on boat ramps because I know it's going to end so spectacularly and you know she hops out just to see how, the, how it's going, how far in she is and oh, oops, no, the handbrake wasn't on and down the car rolls and in it goes. You can see though that the windscreen wipers are still working, the automatic windscreen wipers kicked on because they could detect a little bit of water. Um, but whenever your car is bobbing, you know it's not good, right? Whenever you get to the, the point and your car is no longer, the wheels aren't even on the bottom of the... It's, it's, you're having a bad day, you know? Look, uh, why am I talking about this? Good question. Um, you know, Paul, kind of, the day he had didn't end the way he thought it would, not in the slightest, you know? 
Um, on retrospect, he might see it as a great day, but at the time, I'm sure he thought it was a pretty bad day. All of his grand plans completely get flipped upside down and he finishes the day literally blind and confused as to what is going on. The first few actors of chapters of Acts, um, we see the church taking shape, right? It's kind of really at the very beginning. It starts to do the things that we would now, um, you know, uh, are used to for the way we understand church. It starts to organise itself. It starts to elect leaders. It starts to appoint people for different roles and doing different things. Uh, and it starts to send the word out, not just from Jerusalem, but to the neighbouring places. It starts at Samaria. They're kind of like half Jewish people. You know, they're, they're not Jewish people and, and they're, they're, up, they're not happy with them for however many hundreds of years. Um, but that's kind of like the first step into sending the gospel further. But we hit chapter 9 and chapter 10, and it's marked by two key conversions. The first is the conversion of Saul, and the second is the conversion of Cornelius. Saul will be the apostle to the Gentiles, and Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He's kind of the first noted Gentile convert that you really see um, converted in this way. And it marks something new that is happening in this young church, which is this missionary movement into the world, that this Jesus movement will not be just contained to Jerusalem, not be just contained to Israel, but is starting to make its way outside far further afield. Have a look, verses 1 and verses 2. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation. In the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. Really interesting, the way it's described, Christianity in that one. The only place you'll see it described in the Bible as the way. Perhaps it's an early um, nickname that's being used for these Jesus people, these Jesus followers. Um, perhaps it's because they're coming with this new way of salvation. They're like, hey, don't worry about that old way. There's a new way. Or because they're kind of referring to the way, the truth, and the life, you know, Jesus in this way. But you won't see it referred to that as again. So it's like this is like a really one of the earliest perhaps nicknames used for the, for the, for the Christians. But it's kind of got a bit of a, like a, you know, for the Star Wars fans, it's got a bit of a Mandalorian vibe, doesn't it, to it? The way, follow the way. So the followers of the way. Um, but Paul is being set up here, more importantly, as, in case you weren't wondering, the bad guy, right? He's the bad guy in this story. If you're reading this through for the first time, you don't know what happens. You know, we, all of our kind of understanding of Acts is coloured by the fact that we know what happens with all these people basically. If you're reading for the first time, you're like, oh, this is all, man. He's a bad guy. Like, he's really, he's like the great enemy of the church. You know, he's, he's like the Dracula or he's like the Darth Vader or he's like the Mr. Eggman of Acts, right? He's the bad guy, the one to be feared. He's the one that when he enters, you know that no one is safe. People could die. People could be dragged away and thrown in prison. Have a look. This is just from the chapter uh, earlier in chapter 8. 
um, verse 3, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women and throwing them into prison. Like, this guy's he's bad news. Can you imagine that? Like, the fear that he would instill. He's going to people's houses for whom he thinks are involved in the way, involved in this Jesus movement, and he is dragging them physically out men and women and throwing them into prison like he is a scary guy you know it's kind of like whenever darth vader is around in the in star wars movies you know will be you should be scared because someone's probably going to get hurt even his own people are going to get hurt like no one is safe when he's around it's kind of a little bit like this for saul and the way he is described and set up in the first few chapters of acts um, have a look, we'll, we'll continue on um, from verse 3, where it says, uh, As he was approaching Damascus on this mission to destroy the church, a light from heaven suddenly shone around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The trip from Jerusalem to Damascus is about 240k. So it's kind of like a week's travel, right? He's been traveling a long time. That's why he has uh, a group with him, an escort with him. It's the kind of trip you're not really going to do on your own, not the safest to be traveling that far for that long by yourself. He's nearing the end of this trip. He's, ever, he's right at the end. He's kind of Damascus is, is you know, over that last hill. Um, when he is struck by this vision, struck by this vision of Christ, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And perhaps Saul is like, who are you? I'm not persecuting you. Who, like, Lord, I'm not persecuting you. But interestingly, for Jesus, when you are persecuting his people, you are persecuting him. Right? Not the first time Jesus has spoken in this way. Like when he says, um, you didn't feed me when I was hungry. And they said, when were you hungry? When did you come to us? And he says, whenever someone who was one of mine was hungry and came to you, you didn't feed them, you didn't feed me. You know, this, this close identification that Jesus has with his people is so tight, so close, so real that Jesus himself is being persecuted as Paul Saul is persecuting the church. Saul is struck blind and he is led by hand into the city. Not the entrance he had envisioned. You know, he's been on the road for a week. He's probably thinking, oh, when I get there, you know, when I get, I'm going to come in and they'll all be fearing Saul is here. He has the letters from the high priest. Ere you Christians, you be scared, you be worried. Um, but he doesn't come in like that at all, does he? He doesn't come in proud and powerful. He crawls in humbled and broken. The complete opposite of the arrival that he thought he might have. He came to make the Christians captive, but he is now captive to Christ himself. This great irony. The great bad guy of the church, the Darth Vader, the one to be feared, is actually on his knees, being brought in by hand. Confused, blinded, humbled. Ananias, good old Ananias, he is told 
to go help him. He ain't so keen. <laughs> Seems like a smart guy. You know, uh, you sure, Lord? Uh, it's kind of like someone, you know, like God comes to you and goes, oh, Chopper Reed's just around the corner. He needs help. You're like, you sure? Like, maybe is there someone else that could go? Me? Are you sure? Me? You know, but Adonis, bless his heart, he goes, finds Saul, prays for him, and in fact heals him in the, in the process. So that now this mighty Saul, the great enemy of the early church, has become one of their number. Right? Super interesting passage. Great story. For us, perhaps a little bit of the nuance can be lost because we know the ending, you know. But as you were reading this for the first time, this would have been a kind of a like a mind explosion story. This guy who you probably thought was going to be the great enemy of the church the whole way through the book of Acts, right at the start, is actually completely humbled and turned into one of them. As you'll find out, become perhaps one of the greatest of the apostles in terms of taking the gospel from where it started to where it needs to be. I'm going to deal with a couple of questions as we go through because there's heaps and heaps of stuff we could talk about here. My first one is this. Was Saul converted by choice or by force? You know, Was this a hostile takeover of Saul? And how do we feel about that? If we were reading it for the first time and we read the story of Saul... Would we want that to happen to us? <laughs> Maybe not, you know? Like we often think, oh, the road to Damascus, wow, what a story. I wish that happened to me. But if you were reading it the first time, maybe you wouldn't think that. Maybe you'd think, wow, he like literally gets like, like flattened, knocked to the floor, blinded. He gets kind of led by hand to this place and he's like his whole life is, is flipped upside down. All of his hopes and his dreams and everything he planned is gone. Interesting question to think about. For me... Um, I, I think of it like this, is that Saul is not crushed by Christ, um, but he's humbled by Christ. And the two things are different. You know, what's the question he asks him? What's the question that he, that he asks him that, that convicts Saul? His question is, why are you persecuting me? Right? He doesn't say, you will be destroyed, you will be cursed. You'll be... No, no, no. His question is actually a probing question that Paul might reflect inwardly and, and probe his own heart. Why am I persecuting Christ? You know, his, his, his question um, opens up a reality of Saul's own heart, not that it might crush and destroy him, but that he might recognise in himself his need for humility in this situation. In the end, Saul is not destroyed, but he's kind of freed from the shackles of the life that he had, right? To be made truly into the person that he's going to be. C.S. Lewis um, writes about his experience of conversion in a very interesting way, which makes sense because he is a writer. So you would think he'd be able to do it well. But he uses um, a bunch of analogies to describe his coming to faith. Um, he likens it to a fisherman slowly reeling him in with a lure up inch by inch. He likens it to um, a cat chasing a mouse or a pack of hounds closing in on a fox. And finally, he likens it to playing chess with the, with the, the, the grand master chess player who just keeps outmaneuvering him at every step until he just gives up and says, I give in. Checkmate. You've got me. I can't resist any longer. And he, he explains his experience was not being defeated on the chessboard, 
um, or beaten, but it was like, he, he said, it was like I had this heavy suit of armour on my whole life. And this armour was keeping God at bay. It was keeping God out. And this armour was protecting me from the influences of God and of the Spirit. Until one day, eventually, he just pulled on the straps and the armour fell off. Not that he was defeated, but that he was freed. That he was, he was, he was risen up. He was, he was um, freed from the shackles of all that had been a barrier between him and God. And his experience wasn't defeat, but it was birth. It was rebirth into something new. Um, Paul, in his later writings, of course, he talks about his conversion experience uh, a number of times. And he also talks about his life before coming to Christ. And um, he talks about his former life uh, with shame and embarrassment. You know, um, He regularly says, I deserve nothing because of what I have done, because of what I had done to Christians, because of what I had done to the church, how I had treated God's people. His former life, his career drive, his persecution of the, of the church, he is actually freed from that as he looks back um, in, uh, in, in his later years to reflect on. He is freed from being a man of hate, a man of violence, to being a man of love that would even love the Gentiles, that would take the, the word of uh, the gospel of grace to anyone who would hear it that he was changed from a man of violence and hate to a man of love. Becoming a follower of Christ isn't becoming God's victim, but it's a release from what the world has put on you into a life that was meant for you, into living the life that God has meant for you to live. I also want to think about this idea that the, the road to Damascus is almost kind of like the high watermark for conversion stories, hey? It's like we use it in our vernacular. Like um, if someone has a really miraculous conversion story, like, oh, they had a real road to Damascus. And a lot of people in sharing their testimony is like, well, it's no road to Damascus, but, you know. Um, it, it's kind of like the default go-to story when it comes to um, being converted or coming to faith. Luke repeats it three times in the book of Acts, once here, and twice more in Paul retelling it, like Paul giving a speech, retelling his own story. Um, so worried was Luke that we would miss it, right? He thought, I better put it in three times. Um, and even our tradition of sharing our testimony, kind of the, the genesis, the start of it is, is in Paul's speeches, that when he would go to a place, he would often start with his own experience of coming to Christ. But what do we make of this experience? Is it kind of like a one-of-one one event, or is it something that uh, we should hope or expect or pray for? Well, I do think we need to um, recognise that this was God's experience for one person in one time at one place, you know, as in like we've heard a bunch of different stories uh, over the last few weeks and we're going to hear more. Um, and everyone's story is slightly different because God comes to people where they're at and what they're doing and, and in, in, in the, the different walks of life that they are in. Uh, so it is for Paul, uh, for Saul, he comes to him in the place where he is at. But there are some universal elements of his story that I think do um, cross over all people's stories of coming to Christ. And that is having a real personal encounter with Jesus, having a real personal encounter and, and coming out of that experience um, to God in humility and faith. 
And in hearing those stories, that's what I've heard time and time again, of people having a real encounter with Jesus in all these different ways and then responding to that in humility and faith. Such an important thing that we hear from this story, but such an important thing for us. We might not have that same outward experience that Saul had, but we can, and I think perhaps we must, have that inward experience of encountering Christ in all the ways he comes to us, being humbled and being changed. Let me finish with this as a thought. Who's the, the hero of the story? If, if Saul is the villain, um, who's the hero? I think it's Ananias. Poor old Ananias. Um, who's just minding his own business, doing his own thing in Damascus, um, and is told to go and rescue Saul. Um, if it wasn't for Ananias in the story, where would Saul be? He'd be blind groping around in the dark, wouldn't he? You know what I mean? Like, like Ananias' part in it is key. Ananias hears this calling from God to do something strange, and to do something a bit scary. He says, there's this guy, Saul, go help him. And he's like, you sure? <laughs> you sure that's what you want me to do? Is that a good idea? But he, he's certain of his conviction that God's asked him to do this strange thing. And what does he do? He obeys. He goes to this place. He tries to find Saul. He finds him. He prays for him. And he does what God has asked him to do. I think kind of like Ananias is, is part of the hero of this story. But I think what also is really interesting is, is that the conversion of um, Saul is um, partnered with the, the, the connection with Ananias. Like we often, we'll celebrate the story because the story of Saul's conversion is the exciting thing. You know, there's flashes of lightning, there's, there's, there's voices from God, there's people being blinded and all that kind of stuff. But what is the first thing Jesus does after converting Saul? He goes to Ananias to find someone to disciple Saul, to mentor Saul. The first thing he does, Saul's still out there on the road, groping around blinded, right? That this, this idea that you, you get from this story, that as, as important as that conversion experience was, equally important is connecting Saul with someone for whom can mentor and disciple him as they go forward. Sometimes we forget the importance of this step. You know, we might, um, you know, we, we tell the stories of people who come down at altar calls and people who, who have these experiences, all kind of stuff. Uh, and they're great stories to tell and they should be shared and they should be celebrated. But there's also that second part of that story which needs to be shared and needs to be celebrated, which is when people walk side by side with those people, mentoring and discipling them, praying with them, showing them the way, showing them what the next step is because the conversion is like step one of the marathon but after step one will come step two and three and four and to have someone there to to hold your hand and walk walk you through that that is equally even more important perhaps than that first conversion story here at PC, we want to build a discipling culture we want to build a culture of people who will disciple one another, not just those for whom have just come to faith, 
but also disciple those who are halfway through their journey, perhaps even disciple those who are at the end of their journey, because we see in the scriptures the importance of not kind of just being left to your own devices, go out on your own, but that what Christ wants for his people and wants for, you know, Saul's a pretty important one of his people, is those important, necessary discipling relationships. We want to build a culture that values walking with people, leading them deeper into their faith, just as Christ has shown us and just as we can see in the story of Saul. I'm going to invite the band up. Um, Simon, if you wouldn't mind praying for us, we'll have our final song together.